0: Hi, everybody. Latest edition of The Other Hand. We had a special yesterday uh, where I talked with energy expert Ben Watts. And I'd recommend anybody that's interested in energy. And I guess that's all of us at the moment. Take a listen to that, because uh, it's always good to speak to somebody that does actually know what they're talking about. And the reason why we did that pod is that originally Ben picked us up on a mistake. Heaven forbid that... um, I made about uh, profits, actually, and windfall taxes. So uh, anybody interested in what's happening in the energy space, please take a look or listen uh, to that. Today, I know Jim wants to talk about the Bank of Japan, who sprung a big surprise on the global marketplace today with what looks like the start of their monetary tightening. They've been the last holdout central bank, and that's worth a mention. We've got some data from the euro area on consumer sentiment, which is always interesting, but particularly so this time. On the theme of energy, we should note that there has been an agreement at the EU level to cap natural gas prices at €180. Euros. Just for reference, today they are at 108 So the cap is not operative today, at least. We've got some working from home data, I think Jim wants to mention and a little story about the Merrion Hotel. It's already a long list, so I will try to be brief with the things that um, I will be talking about, which include US construction stats and some more general marks about UK and US housing. On a regular theme, I want to talk about broken Britain. There's been lots of news flow and snippets about that. I also want to talk about Ukraine, what's been going on there. There's been all sorts of horrendous stuff going on there and things that we need to keep an eye on. Finally, if we have time, and it probably won't be finally, because we'll think of other things to say. My little thing that I've been watching out for recently, which is, are we seeing firms, businesses, hide profit margin increases behind the inflation story? And I've got a snippet from one company that suggests that they might well be nothing definitive, but it is something that I am keeping a watching brief on. If we've got time, we will deal with one or two readers' questions and comments that have come in. They are more than welcome. We have, I know, one listener uh, who's put a long comment up on our site today, uh, taking us to task on what we said about the Norwegian wealth tax. And if we get time, we will address that comment today. If not, it'll be next time. So, Jim, let me hand back to you for perhaps just take us through in reasonably quick time, take as long as you like, actually, it's our podcast, uh,
1: the top half of that agenda. Right, Chris, how are you doing? We've seen in the last 12 months and when the story of 2022 um, is being written up, which is happening a lot in the media at the moment, uh, what happened on the global inflation interest rate front will obviously dominate We've seen pretty dramatic monetary tightening in the euro area. Rates have gone from zero to two and a half percent. UK rates have gone up significantly and US rates. The Bank of Japan was the last central bank holding out in the face of these global pressures. Uh, The Bank of Japan maintained a very, very loose monetary policy. And um, one of the consequences of that is that the yen has fallen dramatically, particularly against the U.S. dollar over the last couple of years, actually. And um, it's reached levels that certainly I I don't think I've seen in my working life or maybe at the beginning of it. Uh, But this morning, the Bank of Japan surprised the markets big time uh, by announcing a technical change, I guess, to how it conducts monetary policy. Um, Up until now, the Bank of Japan was strictly controlling the bond yield. It was allowed to fluctuate a quarter percent in either direction. That band of fluctuation has been increased to a half percent. Big deal, you might say, but it does, I think, signify somewhat of a pivot in Japanese monetary policy. And this may be the beginning of the Bank of Japan actually following a lot of other global central banks over the coming months, although it is important to point out that Japanese inflation is still incredibly low. Uh, The Japanese economy is still not exactly a stellar performer. So there's, there's not a lot of rationale, I think, for a significant tightening in Japanese monetary policy. But I think coming as it does at the end of a very eventful year on the interest rate monetary policy front, that was an interesting move this morning and certainly one that exercised markets a great deal. And we've had a lot of volatility during the day.
0: Absolutely, Jim. And I think it was quite a big deal. Um, Something called yield curve control has been practiced by the Japanese for some time now. They've been very explicit about it in ways that other central banks have not. So I think Kuroda, the Bank of Japan governor, blinked that it it is potentially of, of great significance. It certainly put upward pressure on bond yields around the world. Not huge, but definitely bond yields everywhere have reacted. And as we have said many times on this pod, bond yields ultimately are the arbiters of all asset prices. So from that perspective, it's not good news because when bond yields, long term interest rates, long-term government borrowing costs go up, asset prices everywhere else, most of the time tend to go down actually. Not all of the time. The correlation isn't perfect, but that is the rule of thumb that we usually operate with.
1: Yeah, I notice German 10-year bond yields up at 2.28% at the moment. A year and a half ago, those yields were in negative territory to the tune of about 0.7, 0.8%. So there has been a dramatic increase. And in fact, the Irish 10-year bond yield is now at 2.8. So it's, what, um, 52 basis points over Germany. That is a pretty narrow spread for that bond yield relationship. And it says something positive about Ireland and the international attitude towards our public finances and management of the economy. Whereas in the case of Germany... Um, it's, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to interpret because the German economy, more than any other European economy, I think at the moment, is experiencing the most difficult economic circumstances because it obviously has a heavy reliance on imported energy from Russia. It has a heavy export dependence on the slowing Chinese economy. So the German economy is slowing significantly. OK, inflation has taken off there as as everywhere else over the last 12 months. but it's that is a pretty dramatic increase in german bond yields over an 18 month period when we come into 2023 um i think our first podcast will be kind of looking at the year ahead and I, once again we'll probably be saying that inflation and interest rates are likely to be the dominant theme at least in the first half of 2023 um so and 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 as i say the bank of japan moved today just sets us up very, very nicely for that. So an an interesting um, year in store on the inflation interest rate front in 2023. Uh, The markets are a little bit volatile, nervous at the moment, because I think they're taking from central bankers recent comments all over the place that interest rates are likely to remain higher for longer. Um, In Europe, or at least in the Euro area today, um, there was a consumer sentiment result out and consumer sentiment is still in negative territory, but it increased by 1.7, 1.7 points in um, December. And that's now six and a half points higher than the all-time low that was reached in September. So consumer sentiment in the euro area improving, that's against the background of the ongoing Ukraine war, Um cost of living pressures, European Central Bank increasing interest rates and a lot of negativity out there about the you know outlook for the eurozone economy in 2023 and yet consumer sentiment improving. Uh, no apparent reason for that perhaps it's the decline in energy prices that's helping in that regard. But do you think there's a risk Chris that growth in Europe, the United States will actually surprise on the upside rather than the downside next year? Well, there's always a risk of that, Jim. Uh, We're all very pessimistic. Okay, how
0: real is the risk? Hard to say, mate. I mean, I paused there to answer your question. It's a a thought that has occurred to me. That uh we may escape twenty twenty three without this big global recession that pretty much everybody seems to be forecasting. It's just too easy to be pessimistic, quite frankly. And that's because the, the bite out of real incomes that these high energy prices, in particular, inflation in general, is having, and the fact that central banks are determined one way or another to slow economies. So if it doesn't happen, it's because Monetary policy doesn't have the effects that everybody hopes that they do. Um, You know, I'm looking at US construction stats for today. They fell on the month, down half a percent. Um, Residential starts, these these are when ground is broken to start building new houses. This is the lowest since May 2020 um, in terms of levels. Applications to build houses, permits, planning permissions in, in in our language, I guess, which is a proxy for future construction, fell 11.2% on the month. And the surge in mortgage rates in the States has been blamed by house builders for this, that they're just seeing less buyers, so they're building less houses. Borrowing costs for mortgages in the United States, on the back of all that interest rate bond yield story that we just told and continually Narrate how as how it is evolving. They've doubled in, in over the last twelve months. Our house to bar, the costs of borrowing to buy a house in the states have doubled in a year, and so it's having the effect that you would have. And housing is a very good bellwether for the whole economy. It's not the whole economy, but it is a big part of it, and it is a big indicator of what's going on. So we're certainly seeing it slow down in the states. It's not uh, catastrophic. We're not seeing a, a huge slump in either. Uh, building, uh, housing purchases and sales and prices. But it's looking very, very soft. Home builder sentiment, another indicator, when house builders are actually asked, how are you feeling? Uh, That's at a decade low outside the pandemic period, actually. A very well-known economist at the time of the last housing crash in the States, which, gosh, is nearly 15 years ago now, uh, he forecast the uh, impending slump in house prices back then he's saying that house prices over the next two years in the states are going to fall eight to twelve percent that's you know that's a decent fall. who's uh, that Robert Schiller? No that's somebody no. called Tom Lawler oh yeah um, and so he's well known in the states and people pay attention to his forecasts. People connected to the property market in the UK are forecasting the famous soft landing that's a phrase used today by the nationwide building society i think they are or i'm not sure if they're a building society or a bank there isn't a lot of difference these days but the nationwide has said explicitly soft landing and what a soft landing in the uk uh market means to them is house prices down 5% not a lot but again it's soft it's not catastrophic so it's a, a similar sort of sort of picture So I think that central banks raising interest rates, raising borrowing costs for all types of borrowing, not least for housing, it's starting to have the effect that you would expect. And so therefore, economies surprising on the upside seems to be an outside chance. That would be a a long odds bet if it was a horse race. Um, It's perfectly possible. But right now, I think that I'm with the soft, but not catastrophically so, Um, forecasts for for the world economy next year. What I would say to you though, Jim, is if the numbers do come in uh, stronger than expected, if the the real economic growth is stronger than expected next year, and for example, the reason why uh, some people are saying the housing market will be soft but not catastrophically so in the UK is because consumers have strong balance sheets, is what they say. They've got lots of savings relative to how they've come into previous recessions. If that means the whole economy holds up better than expected, I'm afraid that just means that interest rates will go up more than people are expecting. Because I think central banks are pretty determined to provoke this slowdown. And that if economies prove to be more resilient to interest rates, then interest rates will just go up even further. And the risk there is that of course they'll overdo it. Because what we don't know is what the effects of the interest rate rises that we've already seen are going to be. Because in classic cliched economist language, monetary op- policy operates with long and variable lags. And we've got lots of people like um, Larry Summers saying the market's wrong, interest rates in the States are going to go up much higher than we, is currently priced in. And you've got the old bond king. Remember the name Bill Gross? He's still around. He wrote an article in the FT this week saying the Fed should stop now because they've already done enough. And if they continue to do what they say they're going to do they're going to cause a financial accident that's the debate and
1: from, from an investment market perspective um, I have believed for some time that equity markets wouldn't bottom out and start to go on a sustained upward trajectory until the markets were convinced number one that inflation had peaked and was coming back down. And secondly, that the interest rate cycle had peaked, or at least a peak was imminent. And um, if the scenario you described there about growth surprising on the upside, interest rates will rise further. So that could actually create a pretty rocky environment for equity markets in the the early part of next year, I would have thought.
0: That's very plausible. Uh, Overall, I would expect equity markets to go nowhere in 2023 gosh there's a, there's a hostage to fortune that you'll probably beat me up with this time next year jim but at least it might give us some material for an end 2023 podcast chris johns forecasts for a weak economy higher interest rates if the economies prove to be more resilient than we currently think and stock markets to go nowhere all right so that's my trifecta for the year that uh, you, you should write all that
1: down mate i where don't worry i've noticed this. Where, where i i think i would. I I would say if somebody asked me where equity markets were going to be this time next year, uh, the coward in me would say very close to current levels, but the ride from here to there could be a very rocky one. I think I think there's going to be lots of volatility, lots of ups, lots of downs. So I, that's very a, reasonable. I think sideway
0: trading market, mm. a waterbed market we used to call it back in the day. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Mm. Conjure up that awful, vision, awful vision. <laughs> Uh, I I once checked into a hotel in Eindhoven, of all places, in in Holland. The office had booked it for me, the the travel agent, the internal travel agent, back in the day when we had these sorts of things. And they had inadvertently booked me into a, a Dutch brothel. And my it's the only time I've ever slept on a waterbed. It was extraordinary. <laughs> on my own, I stress. I was just gonna to... <laughs> On my own, I stress. Anyway, moving swiftly on, Jim. Y- I y- want Yeah, to you have
1: one on me there, Chris. I've never slept in a Dutch brothel, okay? Have you slept on a waterbed? <laughs> no. There you go.
0: Anyway, 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 um let's let's move move sw- swiftly on. Um they should have known better, because it was a Dutch bank I was working for at the time. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I want to talk about something far more serious, which is Ukraine. A few things going on there. One of the things that I've been looking at a lot, and I know quite a few people are as well, is something called open source intelligence. On Twitter and other channels, other platforms, you can see all sorts of different people blogging, mini-blogging in ways that are absolutely fascinating. And and you can get information about the Ukraine war, very accurate information, I think, in real time. You can get it faster than you'll see it on the nightly news. One of the disturbing things that's being seen today from open source intelligence are Russian tanks, T-80s, moving uh, in Belarus. Uh, Putin was in Belarus yesterday meeting the Belarusian leader, leading to speculation that something is happening up in that uh, country that borders Ukraine to the north. And a whole bunch of T-80s are apparently on the move, Um, haven't crossed the border yet, but certainly worth looking at there's one of the most i guess unexpected consequences of the war it's been there's we've seen a, a mini revival in long form investigative journalism and what do i mean by that take a look at two articles that appeared in the us press over the weekend one in the washington post one in the new york times extraordinary pieces of journalism uh, the the one in the new york times uh, would justify an annual subscription to to that paper in and of itself. It was written by several journalists in the main byline with something like two dozen other people credited with with contributions to the article. So it was a tour de force of incredible resources. And it essentially went through what has been happening to the Russian army, and uh, the extraordinary developments of incompetence, corruption, the very strange decision early on in the war for Russia not to take out the Ukrainian Air Force. And it was a very simple thing that by the time they got around to attacking the planes in the Ukrainian Air Force, the Ukrainians had moved them all. Uh, it was just lumbering bureaucracy of, of the, Ru- the Russian battle plan. And the extraordinary thing about this article and the Washington Post article is the access that they clearly have got to documents and people in the Russian army. So they had actually copies of the Russian battle plans from the invasion, original invasion, which contained things like orders to Russian officers to take their dress uniforms and medals for the victory parade in Kiev in three or four days' time after the invasion started. Incredible stuff. And they talk to Russian people in the army, people who have been wounded. The Washington Post followed the 200th Special Motorized Brigade, which is an elite Russian combat unit normally deployed to guard uh, Russia's vast nuclear arsenal stored along the Kola Peninsula. And this unit's been decimated. In a couple of months, it went from over 1,400 men to less than 900. The commanding officer was badly wounded. And the documents that the Washington Post has gotten hold of include that commanding officer's medical reports and his passport. And they managed to phone his wife. They spoke to this guy's wife on WhatsApp, I think. The article gives details of the ongoing degradation of that unit, this motorised brigade. And by the end of the summer, nearly all of its officers were dead or wounded and 70% of its equipment destroyed or captured. Again, an amazing piece of journalism. If anybody's interested in that kind of thing, I would thoroughly recommend it. Now, of course, this is reporting, classic old-fashioned reporting, which is great to see, but and neither a newspaper offers an opinion on what might happen next. That's what I guess a lot of people are interested in. There are lots and lots of those kinds of op-eds, opinion pieces out there, but they all tend to coalesce around one basic idea. This war is not going to end anytime soon. Putin hasn't won, but neither is he losing anyone who calls for negotiations, Henry Kissinger, a name you might remember, uh, he's well into his 90s now, wrote an article in the UK Spectator magazine this week calling for negotiations, and Kiev immediately denounces him as an appeaser of regression. I, so that's where we're going with all of this. That's all I wanted to say about Ukraine. I think there's always lots more one could say, uh, but it, it, I, I know, Jim, it's, it's, it's always quite a depressing picture, isn't it? Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, from my personal perspective, I have been really unable to determine what sort of off ramp there could possibly be for Putin anytime soon. So this thing could just rumble on and on. And this time next year, we could be still talking about um, all of the same issues. And the interesting piece, of course, would be from an economic and financial market perspective is how economies and how markets actually learn to live with that scenario, because they will, I think have to learn to live with it. Uh, You would hope there will be uh, huge, huge moves around Europe, particularly to reduce the dependence on imported Russian energy. Um, energy independence is absolutely crucial. Energy security is crucial in this sort of environment. So uh, that's that's going to be the big story. Um do you, what do you make of the price cap that the European Commission agreed 180 euro a barrel uh, sorry per 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 kilowatt. whatever kilowatt, kilowatt, kilowatt a excuse me. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um I'm not sure about it at all. mm. Um, These sorts of things tend not to work in practice, but we haven't had any practice of energy price caps before. Interfering with market mechanisms can be dodgy. The exchange in Holland where the benchmark price for gas is set has said that 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 might cause a collapse of market mechanisms. So I worry that uh, there may be unintended consequences for this. I hope that the cap is never operable in the sense that, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the cap is nowhere near the current price of gas. The current price of gas, the last time I looked, was 106 euros per kilowatt hour, which is well below this 180 cap. But it has been at 300, 350 actually is where it peaked in the summer. So we're well off the peaks. Um, and as Ben Watts reminded me yesterday, don't take too much comfort from the current, relatively speaking, low low price of natural gas. It's still an awful lot higher than it was a year or two ago, orders of magnitude higher, and that, that's a real problem. Um, he gave me an interesting stat that you basically double The wholesale price of gas, and add a bit to get what it will actually cost you for the electricity that that gas will produce. So at 100 euros, we should will be looking at 240, 250 euros a kilowatt hour for our electricity, and that's not a good look. And he also reminded me, pointed out to me, that the price of uh, gas for next winter is higher at the moment than the current price of gas. People are very worried about next winter and I guess that's why this cap is there. So I hope it won't be necessary and I'm not sure that it's going to work in the way that it is intended. The
1: intentions are good, but yeah. It's it's operative from the 15th of February in any event and uh, it was just described by the commission as a temporary measure to avoid extreme price swings. So let's see how that works. Um, we, we spoke last week um, and we've spoken several times about uh, young people in Ireland and how the ladder was being pulled up behind them. And uh, I was referring last week to a Eurostat survey showing that young people in Ireland were amongst the least happy in the European Union and that Ireland was a little bit of an outlier in the sense that older people were happier than younger people in this country. And um, I spoke about some of the possible reasons for that. Housing is obviously one. Um, I spoke about nanny state. I spoke about inheritance tax. I spoke about pensions. um, All pressures on young people as they try and find a way in the world. And um, we got some comments on the... Um, Substack site basically saying that um, we needed to bring someone on who could understand and rationally talk about how young people feel and um, suggested a journalist in the journal and on the base of an article uh, that person had written recently, which you read and you um, basically rubbished uh, in in response to this guy's comments. But I, I have to say, um, I was a little bit annoyed by the comment in the sense that, well, I shouldn't use the word annoyed. I wasn't. I never get annoyed at feedback. It's great to get it, but I was a little bit taken aback because um, I have all along tried to explain um, and understand why young people. Are flocking towards Sinn Féin. At least that's what the opinion polls are showing, and the reasons are fairly obvious. And housing is obviously top of the pile. Um, I think we've we've discussed that very well. Uh, we were being set up basically as two dinosaurs who have totally lost touch with the younger generation. Um, well, that's with... distinctly possible, Jim. Well, it is distinctly <laughs> possible, but the the evidence is not there to support it. I think. I think we give a pretty. We have given a pretty balanced. Um, analysis of this whole situation and um, I have certainly argued for some time and I know you have too that um, the older generation has pulled the drawbridge up behind it and let the young generation swing and I spoke about the nimbyism in relation to housing developments around the place here in Terenure where I live there was one in Dundrum and I did make the point that if 30 40 years ago when the houses were being planned, that those people are now living in in those areas. If the previous inhabitants had adopted the same attitude, those people would never have ended up living in those areas. So, you know, nimbyism is definitely, in my view, acting against young people as well, uh, particularly in relation to housing. But I also think in relation to energy, which is a very fundamental issue as well. So um, in in defence of myself, certainly, I would say... Um, that having two sons in their 20s, um, I think I kind of understand the issues that those young people are facing. And I totally empathise. Absolutely, Jim. Your point about NIMBYs is well made. It's it's something that
0: I discussed at length with Ben yesterday on the Energy podcast. And as you say, from a whole host of perspectives, the housing crisis, the environmental crisis, the energy crisis, from the, a cost of energy point of view, we've got to confront the planning process and the NIMBYism to get wind and solar farms built, wind farms particularly in Ireland, particularly offshore. There's enough wind offshore, these two islands, UK and Ireland, to have surplus energy for us to be able to uh, sell it to uh, other countries on, along interconnectors. If we build enough wind farms, we know that. The only issue will be intermittency. So, simply to get the price of energy down to levels that people can afford, we need to build wind farms. That's nothing to do with the environment. That's simply a question of cost because wind energy is just so much cheaper, orders of magnitude cheaper than energy, other forms of energy, particularly gas. And that's not going to change, as we keep saying. But when you add in the environmental crisis, the existential crisis that is the environment, with those economic arguments for doing alternative energy, it strikes me that you have to be uh, somewhat misinformed. I was going to be rude and call NIMBYs all sorts of horrible names. But people who object to this stuff, uh, it makes no sense to me. And from a political perspective, the government has to persuade people And if they can't persuade people, they just have to force people to accept all this stuff to be built. It must be built. We don't have a choice. There is no choice. We need to have wind farms. We need to decide, choose um, uh, an aesthetic decision. Just make up your own mind that they're going to be beautiful, modern windmills rather than the ugly eyesores that these people seem to think that they are. It's a question of energy literacy. It's a question of literacy generally. If people actually thought about this stuff for very long and read the kind of things that we've been reading recently in other work that we've been doing, some consultancy work, you know that it's not a debate. It's absolutely not a debate. We have to do this from the point of view of housing, nimbyism and all that kind of stuff and planning and all the other things that um, we we go on and on about. We're going to keep going on about because it needs to be done, Jim. I don't know how much time we've got left, but am I allowed to have a little rant about the UK, or do you want to leave it till next time?
1: I just no, no, absolutely. Just in a second. Just want to, in response to what you've been saying there, um, you know, we have never suggested that wind is the solution to all of these problems. A portfolio approach to energy has got to be the way forward. You know, there's many different forms of energy. Wind is one and it has to be a very important one. And I think increasingly offshore wind energy is going to become the name of the game. Um, I got myself into a lot of trouble down in my home parish in Waterford with comments I've made in public about the nimbyism that is rife down there in opposition to a few farmers developing a solar farm, um, signs up about destroying communities. Um, guys, far, a farmer I know got attacked in a local supermarket. So, you know, it's 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 pretty extreme stuff. But I called it out and uh, got a lot of negative feedback. But there, there you are, broken Britain, Chris. I'll give you two minutes.
0: Yeah, um, and I will probably keep going on about this for podcast after podcast. It's something caught my eye today written by an ex-colleague of mine from 100 years ago. I worked with this guy. He's a professor at Oxford University called Simon Ren lewis And he's written a blog post, free to read. I'd recommend anybody have a look at it on his blog. <clears throat> and it's called The Political, Moral and Intellectual Bankruptcy of the Current Conservative Party. The title kind of says it all, doesn't it? But there are a lot of these sorts of articles around at the moment. A chap called Nick Cohen, well-known journalist in the UK. He's got his own substack now. And he's written something very, very similar in terms of the sorts of things that are going on. We've talked about this. I've talked about this at length recently. I've had some communications today with people telling me about the water quality since the Britain left the EU. It no longer has to impose water quality standards on um, its water utilities. And that over the summer had all those pictures of raw sewage being pumped onto beaches. People are now telling me, and I've no idea whether this is, you know, widely true or not, but sales of bottled water in London and the southeast are going through the roof because the smell of chlorine has just become unbearable from the water coming out of people's taps. The climate crisis just mentioned in one context, in another, you've talked before, Jim, about the coal mine. That's a kind of moral and intellectual bankruptcy there that I, you know, Simon mentions as well. Another snippet of data today is that the, there are a list of the top trading partners regularly published by the United States, and Vietnam has now moved up to overtake the UK as a top trading partner for the United States. and That's the first time the UK has fallen out of this top traders list since records began a couple of decades ago. Simon talks about the strikes that are going on in the UK, which clearly are incredibly wide, broad, deep, so many different sectors on strike, feels like the country just simply doesn't work anymore. He thinks the government is doing it deliberately. He notes that the Financial Times recently stated quite explicitly that the government blocked a new pay offer to be made to the railway workers, the union is called the RMT. He's very suspicious that they are looking to actually provoke these strikes, that they're enjoying these strikes because it piles a bit of pressure, they think, on Labour and might entice a few Tory voters back to the fold if they start to lose sympathy with the strikers. There's no sign of that with the nurses anyway. And I guess the model must be Thatcher that it was the winter of discontent in the 1970s that gave Thatcher her election victory in 1979 and that the Tories must be hoping uh, by continuing these strikes by not making any pay offers uh, by not actually distinguishing between worthy and unworthy causes because it can't be possibly be the case with all of these people on strike that they're all equally unworthy of a of a proper pay rise or a pay rise that, that they would like. This is all about, uh, I think, just manipulating people's feelings in order to try and get some votes, which generally speaking is what this government has been doing for years now under all of the, the many different prime ministers that we've had. And at the heart of what's wrong, I think, is that the all that the Tories do is they give us platitudes and they don't give us policy. I ask myself regularly, what is the point of Rishi Sunak? I have a deep suspicion that he is one of these hyper-educated nitwits that if he hadn't had that hyper education at private school and Oxford, that he would be a very he wouldn't be prime minister. And he's the sort of type that the Oxford admissions tutors talk about, that they have to try and distinguish between very bright people with good A levels who would really benefit from an Oxford education, pushing them onto the next level or the hyper-educated nitwits who've been taught how to pass exams. They're bright enough and not give them places at Oxford. And sometimes they, they can't distinguish between the two. And I think SYNAC um, is, a, is a classic middle management type. What's happening to the UK is dreadful. So I'll shut up there. Um, all I would finally conclude with is that I, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, have put a Twitter poll up today in which I've said, Britain doesn't work anymore. Something is fundamentally broken. And so it's a Twitter poll. If you've never seen one, you can, very easy to set up. And it's a simple yes or no answer. Quite a few people have voted. And I would urge anybody to to vote or to retweet this Twitter thing that I have put up, because the more people vote, the more statistically significant it will be. And 91% of the respondents have so far agreed with the premise that Britain doesn't work anymore. Something is fundamentally broken. It certainly feels that way at the moment. End of rant, Jim.
1: Okay, Chris, we'll wrap it there. One point I meant to make earlier in relation to housing was that there was a story today that the Marion Hotel is going to build accommodation in a site it owns at the back of the hotel to house its staff. And that really is indicative of the extent of the housing crisis um, in this city, certainly, but I think in Ireland generally at the moment. Chris, great to talk and um, talk to you later in the week, okay? See you soon, mate. Cheers. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify,